we are going to start a new series called Blueprint. Blueprint, the book of Acts is what we're going to be studying. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts. Um, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Acts is 28 chapters, so it's going to take us a good bit of time to get all the way through it. So uh, last time we did a book that was 28 chapters, I think it was 88 sermons. That was when we went through Matthew. Um, presumably this will be a little bit shorter, but <clears throat> we're going to be uh, in here for a while. We'll take little breaks as we look at, you know, a few chapters at a time. We'll go, you know, do another section or another teaching series and we'll come back. But on the long haul, we're going to be going through the book of Acts. The reason why is we just started uh, the, <coughs> the, the sermon series this past three weeks on what are kind of some things we want to highlight about Remedy. So whenever anybody comes up to you and asks, hey, what's Remedy Church all about? You should be able to say community, mission, and care. Um, and so what we're going to do now is we know that we want to do community because we want to build biblical community here. Uh, mission because we want to join Jesus on mission and care. We want to practice intentional care as we're wanting to do those three things well at Remedy Church. Uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts, which is the narrative or the story of how the first church after Jesus resurrected, how they did those three things really well. And so as we're looking at the book of Acts, we'll see examples of how the early Christians practiced community mission care, what they did, what was the God's design as they as they started the new church, uh, the or, I should say not the new church, as they started the church for the very beginning. And we'll be able to take some cues on how we can do community mission care really well. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts for a while. Chapter 1, verse (coughs) 1. Still have the coughs, I'm sorry. I'm going to pray. And then um, we'll start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, your your word that you've given to us. You, You did not have to... Give us your word. You didn't have to provide for us your very word so we can uh, hear from you, but you did out of, out of kindness. And so we pray that we would approach the text this morning with reverence and understand that these aren't just uh, words from a book, but these are your very words from your book. And so unlike any other book, when we read this, we're hearing from God. And so because of that, give us a deep desire to study, give us a deep desire to know, give us a deep desire to understand what you're saying. And more than just uh, mere intellectual understanding, give us a deep desire to know you as we read your words, a deep desire to obey you as we read your words. I pray that for me, God, you would give me great understanding, you would help me, that you would fill me with the spirit, that you would speak through me, And that everyone here, including myself, would hear from you, be changed by you. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we will uh, jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after... He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. So when they had come together, he asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the, book, the name of this book, as we're going to be studying, as you can see at the very top, it says um, Acts, or better, it's, a, it's the Acts of the Apostles. And so what that means is, <clears throat> after the resurrection, after Jesus went into heaven, as we just read, the apostles had to be obedient to what they did. So this is the, the acts or the things that the apostles did in order to be obedient to Jesus, in order to actually bring about what it is he told them to do. So this is them acting and doing what they're supposed to do. Now, the author of this particular book is Luke. It's written by Luke. Uh, I want to show you a couple reasons why I say that's the case. Um, the first one is, um, the first one's not so obvious. The second one is probably, if you've read the Bible at all, you, you, you would know. But uh, look over with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, go to verse 8. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 16 just this major switch in language. So in Acts chapter 16, all the way up until from... Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. It's written in plural, but it's written in third person plural. Luke, as he's writing, he's talking about those disciples, those, those apostles, the acts they're doing, the things they're doing, how they're fulfilling the mission, how they're fulfilling what Jesus said. And he, he keeps saying they all throughout. You can see it starting at verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. This is the great Macedonian call for Paul. Paul is wanting to go one place and a vision appears. I wish this would happen for me, but it never has. A vision appeared to Paul in the night and says a man of Macedonia was standing there. Say, come over here to Macedonia and help us. Don't go that way. So literally a division. Now, verse 10 is where the switch happens. So all of a sudden, at this particular point, whoever the author is joins the they. You can see it in verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. So this switch happens right there. And for the rest of the narrative, all of a sudden, from third person uh, plural, it's in first person plural. Whomever this writer is, I think it's, it's Luke, he's joined them and he's part of it now. He's doing the mission with them. So... Uh, you can keep reading, and as you keep reading the particular book, you're narrowed down to a few choices, but I think the clear writer is Luke, as you read. Now, that's the, the first reason, maybe not the most clear, um, <clears throat> but the second one, which I think is even more clear, is Luke itself. So if you, uh, if you switch over to, to Luke chapter 1, I want you to see Luke chapter 1, the introduction to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at it in comparison to the introduction to the book of Acts, and you'll see where it's got, it's got to be Luke. So um, remember, as we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I wrote about Jesus. And in the second book, I'm going to tell you what the apostles, how they did Jesus' work. So look over in, in Luke chapter 1, and you'll see <coughs> how he began his first book. Inasmuch 
as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for, for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so, book one is written to Theophilus, Luke, and book two is also written to Theophilus. And historically, Luke has has clearly been written by Luke. And so therefore, since Luke has this kind of introduction to Theophilus written to him, and in Acts chapter 2, we have this second book written to Theophilus. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. By the way, Theophilus, uh, Theos means God, Philo, Philos means lover or love. So you're talking about this guy's name is God lover or lover of God. So if you're pregnant, good, good boy name right there, Theophilus, someone who loves God. Uh, that's just a side note. So anyway, um, back to what we're seeing here. Um, and, and something you ought to know. So as you're looking at Luke and as you're looking at Acts, when you read this, this introduction to the book of Acts, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I did this and this is the way I wrote with Jesus. This means this. Um, so all the things that, all the claims that he's going to make in the, the introduction of Luke, the way that he wrote, how he wrote, the the manner in which he writes, the purpose for which he writes, all those things, all the claims that he makes in the introduction to Luke, all apply in the, to the book of Acts as well. Because for him, he's not just kind of writing Luke, and then one day he'll, he just happened to stumble upon writing Acts, and that's the way it was. Instead, he, he intentionally wrote, it's better to even think of kind of as one book, Luke-Acts. We've got Luke-Acts, part and one's part one, and one's part two. But everything was always intentionally supposed to be understood as a whole. So whenever you read Luke, read Acts right after it, because it's really one big book, part one, part two. So all the claims he makes in the introduction to Luke apply to Acts. In other words, the, the eyewitness appeal, everything that he says. So look at what he says. Just as much as people have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us. Because Luke wasn't a contemporary at this particular time with the, with the, um, with the disciples. So he goes as a, as, a, as a doctor, also a historian, and does all the research necessary to be able to write a true, accurate narrative of true history. He says, it seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So... His intention as he's writing the book of Luke is to be as precisely accurate and historically accurate and 100% truthful and right reality as he's doing that in the book of Luke. All those claims that he's making in the first account of Luke also apply to Acts. So as we're looking at the book of Acts, this is also Luke's intention as he writes Acts to write something that's clearly true reality history. So... um, Luke Acts has the same introduction and Acts chapter 16 switches um, from kind of third person to first person. So what what we can gain from all this as we're reading is that there is, without a doubt, this book is written by (coughs) um, Luke. Now, Sometimes as you, as you read the Gospels, as you read the Gospel, and I, I stick the book of Acts in there because it's also a narrative and it's genre. Um, as you read that, possibly these, these claims are made back to you, how can you say that this is real reality and true history? They wrote from this perspective with an agenda, and they're writing about a man who's like, making bread appear out of nowhere. He's just looking at people that aren't healed, that are all messed up and, and healing them. That's, that's lift 
that, I'm sorry, that's myth and legend. That's not real kind of reality. Uh, and as we're looking at all that, because there are some absolute, just like there was in Matthew and Luke, uh, supernatural occurrences that happen in the book of Acts. So when people start speaking in tongues or the Holy Spirit descends in Acts 2 or Paul heals somebody. I mean, supernatural things happen in the book of Acts as well. We cannot shrink back from the charge where people say, that's just myth, that's just legend. We have to boldly say, no, it's not. This is true reality. This is, this is real. This is absolute reality history that Luke is writing, not some fancy thing. And so I'll, what I want to do is, as we're going into the book of Acts kind of as a whole, I want to read something from C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, was a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. So he read a lot of literature and understood the difference between legend and myth um, and was an atheist before he became a Christian. And so understands how you're supposed to read historical documents, especially if they claim to be narrative or if they claim to just kind of be story. C.S. Lewis says this, kind of talking about all of the New Testament um, Gospels Acts. He says this, uh, a point, there is a point of view that you would have to regard these accounts um, of, the, of, of Jesus to be as legends. Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't even work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would have ever allowed that to be so. Apart from little beats of plato- bits of platonic dialogues... This fr- from Plato, um, there are no conversations that I know of in, in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. He's referring to John. There's nothing like in even modern literature until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. So uh, just a hundred years ago is where people would start as they're writing history, put in kind of little details that seemingly didn't make any point just to try to make you understand that it's real. The details they're adding really add no, th- no value to history. And, and, except to just to make you really believe that this must have happened, or why would he add that detail? That's only something that's really happened in the last hundred years. Now, we're so ingrained in that kind of reading, we think that's how it's always supposed to be. But all the way before that, for the last 2,000 years, that's not how they wrote. They just wrote what happened and didn't include details that weren't important to the history. And so he's saying, since it does that, since it does that, then it's absolutely, absolutely trustworthy to be real reality history that Luke's writing. He's not just writing legend to try to fa- fancy up this imagination that, that Jesus is some, some great guy, some legend, some, some guy that could do healings, but not really a real person. He's writing, wanting us to see that this is absolutely true. And as we're reading the book of Acts, not only do we need to understand that Luke's writing for history, uh, writing real reality history, but he's also wanting you to see that the central theme of Acts is Jesus. Now, um, I have three themes that have to do with Jesus that we're going to look at in just a second. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about the the book of Acts and how Luke uh, writes the book of Acts, says this. The starting point, the fundamental thing, is that Christianity is about Jesus. Luke says, I've written to you already about him, said, said Luke in effect. I'm going to tell you more about him. 
Christianity is not a teaching, it's a person. It's not merely a moral outlook that's to be applied in the realm of politics. You start with a historical person. Luke was a pure historian. He was giving an account of events and facts. The Lord Jesus was the theme of the preaching of the early church, and he's the theme of the gospel of Luke, and he's the theme of Acts of the Apostles. So as we're reading the book of Acts, and as we're going to start studying this for a while, Luke wrote it as a historian with the full intention of writing absolute true history, not myth, not legend, not just aggrandizing for no sake. Everything he writes is absolutely true. He believes these things to be absolutely true. And it's all about the person and work of Jesus. Now, it was written somewhere uh, around uh, middle, early to middle 60s. So we're looking at somewhere around 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus that he wrote um, this particular book. So now, verses 1 through 11, as we're going to look through this, Luke, (coughs) as he's writing the book of Acts, is going to put three themes in there. And these three themes that he puts in the book, uh, uh, in the introduction, verses 1 through 11, are imperative that we understand and as we understand, understand them, the only way to read the rest of the book is to understand these particular three themes. Imagine it kind of like, here's a window, and you have these three themes. And the only way I can understand everything that's past the window, the only thing I can understand, chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through all 28 chapters, is to look through there. If I open up the door and those three things are gone, and I'm just trying to study the rest of the book, I'm going to miss it. I have to, these three things are, are, are these three themes are absolutely important. I have to look through that prism to understand the rest. So my title is this. My title is this. It's, it's short. Three important introductory themes. Now, I, I, I put it short because I usually get made fun of when I have really long titles. You know, so it's one of those kind of Jonathan Edwards titles that goes on forever. So here's the real title that I didn't put up there. But this is, this is it. The, the three important introductory themes necessary in order to understand the introduction, in order to correctly read the book of Acts. Smiley face. So that's, that's, uh, that's really the whole title. But I just put three introductory themes. But here's my point. Listen. In order to understand all of the book of Acts, we have to see that Luke needs for us to see that these three things are going to be themes all throughout the book. And without understanding these three things, you won't understand the book. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to study it for a long time. And we have to see that Luke's full intention is that these three things weave their way through the narrative. And if you don't believe them, you're going to misread it. Verses 1 through 3, you'll see the first one. In the first book, O Theophilus, lover of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in the gospel of Luke, I talked about the person and the work of Jesus, everything he did, his life, his burial, his resurrection. And now, after he is resurrected, which we're going to see happens in the very beginning, the rest of this book is, what did the apostles do with that? That's what the book of Acts is about. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, whom the apostles he had chosen. To them... Here's the first theme you have to understand. To them, that's to the, the disciples, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. So what he's saying is after Jesus died, after Jesus was resurrected, he didn't just like resurrect and say, all right, guys, I'll see you later. It's time for me to woohoo, like hide, right? Instead, he hung around for 40 days. For 40 whole days, Jesus intentionally appeared In front of people as someone who had died and had resurrected. And these intentional appearings for 40 days 
over and over in front of people weren't just to no purpose. They had an absolute purpose. And that's what he's writing. The, the appearances, the post-resurrection appearances that happened for 40 days before Jesus finally went up were all intentional and had a, had a reason. And here he is, he's telling us. To the disciples, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing them during the 40 days. And while he was doing that, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So these, these post-resurrection alive appearances um, were absolutely important. That's the first theme. What he's trying to do is this. So in order to read the book of, of Acts correctly, the first theme we have to understand and believe is this. Put it up. Boom. Now. All right. It's going to come up. There it is. The absolute veracity of the resurrection. Veracity just means truthfulness. Veritas. Um, I understand that there's a cultural reference I can use. Uh, Harry Potter. He had to take veritas truth serum in order to finally speak the truth. Jordan gave me that before the service. I didn't know that. But here. So the veracity just means truthfulness. Uh, so the absolute veracity. So Luke is writing this, wanting us all to understand that he completely believes in the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus really died, that he was really resurrected, and that he's appearing for these 40 days so that everybody will understand that he really did resurrect. He presented himself as alive, having suffered, because he's doing this for many proofs. We know, uh, Paul also records this, in, in a kind of a broad brush uh, way in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, not in a detailed manner, but he does reference it in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen is kind of the resurrection chapter. Um, he says this in First Corinthians fifteen, starting at verse five, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to also at one, at one particular point during these forty days to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are even still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some are dead, but most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go ask them. They're still alive. So he's appearing all over the place during these 40 days, at one point even to 500 people. And the reason why that he did that is he's wanting everybody to understand that he really did defeat Satan, sin, and death and come back to life. The resurrection, the being dead, coming back to life, is absolutely true. And so Luke, as he's writing Acts, is wanting us to understand that. Derek Thomas, uh, he's a theologian, says this, the resurrection appearances were proofs to them, as it says in verse 1-3, uh, Acts 1-3, to them, <coughs> he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And he says, but proofs of what exactly? What, what's the point for appearing for 40 days as, I'm alive, just to let you, I'm still alive, here I am. What's the point before he ascends to the Father? He says this, the proofs, the fact that he appeared to people alive, this is what he was demonstrating. He was demonstrating his victory over death. Death had killed him, but then he had victory over death. So he's wanting everyone to see, I'm alive. Death didn't have the final say. I have the final say. I defeated death. Not only that, his appearances corroborated Jesus' claim before he died that he was divine, that he was God. Only God can do that. And so he's helping them see, I'm back alive. So remember all those times where I said I was God? I was telling the truth. Not only that, 
Um, his appearances validated his every word. So all the things he said before must be true because now he's done this. So those things are true. Saying this, particularly that the gospel truth that declared that deliverance of sin through faith in Jesus and Christ alone is possible. Therefore, the gospel, the good news is actually true because of the resurrection. Not only that, this is the best part. The post-resurrection appearances attest to the fact that his atoning work, his death on the cross, was um, complete and perfect. And that his offering up as himself as the lamb in the place of sinners was accepted by God. And so if all the wrath was put on Jesus and now that, uh, that his, his wrath has been appeased and now Jesus is accepted, here's the good news. Those who are in Christ are also now accepted. So the resurrection is key. Without the resurrection, I mean, we're toast. There's no point. But because of the resurrection, because Jesus is now accepted before the Father, you who are in Christ, who were once dead in your sin, me, we're all now accepted before the Father because of Jesus. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection tells us that the Father in heaven declares, well done, good and faithful servant. Sir, 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 servant, each appearance that Jesus has for those 40 days spells the absolute end of sin. For apart from this proof, apart from these appearances, we're still in our sins. So without these resurrection appearances, we're still in our sins. But because he's proving to people that he really did defeat Satan's sin and death, then Satan's sin and death has been defeated for us on our behalf. And he says, each of these appearances declared that Calvary has met every obligation of the law. But they also spoke by way of prophecy. The resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of the resurrection of those who are in union with him by faith. He's the first fruit, first fruits of something greater. So the, re- the resurrection proofs, where he's saying, look how disgustingly beat up and nasty and messed up I was as they beat me and crucified me. And now... Look at this body right here, this resurrected body. See, there's a major contrast between these two. The contrast between my beat up, bloody, thorn of crowns body, all scarred up on the cross, and this right here, the contrast is so huge. He's saying, that same contrast is you. This is your state of sin and who you were before. And if you're in Christ, The contrast of those two things is also your contrast. You once were sinful and now you're completely forgiven and pure. So, the resurrection is a foretaste of what it will be like for us when we're finally forgiven. That's the first theme that Luke wants you to read this entire book through. The absolute veracity of the resurrection. Luke is desperate to read this book correctly and understand that the resurrection of Jesus is to help us inform the way we read the book of Acts. And this means that Luke and those who are in Christ also believe that Jesus had victory over death. Jesus was God. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus' death appeased all the wrath of God. And now we are accepted before the Father. So how is that changing the way you live? How is the resurrection informing the way you live every day? That's the first theme. The second theme is this. You can see it in verses 4 through 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait 
for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you, here it is, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's going to say it again in verse 8. So <clears throat> when they'd come together, they asked, Lord, will you restore, at this time will you restore Israel, the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So in verse 5 and verse 8, we see Jesus is helping them see. For a long time, it's been me with you, and I'm ascending to the Father, and so you've had God with you, and now you're going to have God not just with you, but in you. So the second theme, and this is a huge deal for Luke. I mean, a huge deal that they had never experienced this before. This is a brand new concept for them. But he wants you to understand, as he mentions all throughout the book of Acts, it's a huge deal, the Holy Spirit. So the second thing is this. The second theme to, to be able to properly read the book of Luke's is the integral work of the Holy Spirit. Integral just means essential. This is a, a, you know, a dictionary day for us all too. We get to learn new words. Um, <coughs> that was unintentional. It just happened. So as we look at the title, the Acts of the Apostles, possibly an even better name for this book could be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So while the, the apostles are doing stuff, the real person that's kind of out in front of them, making it all happen so the apostles can be obedient to the commission that was given, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the real player, if you will, playing the game or making it happen. These, the real title could be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you see there in verse 4, the disciples were not to go. It, he tells them in verse 3... Um, that he had presented himself alive. And in verse 4 it says, And while they're staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So We're going to see in just a second they're going to be given a commission. But he tells them, Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't go start. <laughs> it's a bad idea if you try to go do this by yourself. You just need to hang tight. One chapter later, the Holy Spirit's coming. It's just, it's just one chapter later. So you, you need to hold off. Now, obviously, he didn't say one chapter, but it comes in Acts 2. Um, one chapter later, the Holy Spirit's going to come. But he's trying to help them see. Don't go straight out and try to do stuff. You're going to need to wait here in Jerusalem for someone to come. <clears throat> and the person that's coming is the Holy Spirit. Um, the reason why he's coming, the reason why the Holy Spirit is coming is not because I've given you this commission and you're going to be able to do a whole lot of it. You just kind of need a little bit of extra help. You just need some backup. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying you are going to fail miserably unless the Holy Spirit comes. He's not your extra help. He's not your little backup player that makes you get things done. He is the one that's going to be out in the forefront. He is the one that's actually going to give you power in order to accomplish this mission that I've given you to be witnesses to all the ends of the earth. So the second thing that's absolutely integral for us to be able to understand as we read the book of Acts, and it's over and over and over. When, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, you've got to realize this was a brand new concept for them. They always just kind of walked around with Jesus. You know, Jesus, what are we going to do? And then Jesus went up and they're like, okay, God's gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? They need God. And so God doesn't just come kind of stand beside them the way Jesus was walking around. Not that that's some kind of small thing. Instead, God's going to reside in them now. Brand new thing. So as you read the book of Acts and they seem really jazzed up about the Holy Spirit... Y'all use the word jazzy? We probably don't. Like, super excited, whatever you say now. Like, that's because that's so new to them. Like, the Holy Spirit's inside of us. This is a huge deal. So, the absolute essential work 
of the Holy Spirit. And you might be saying, how can something that I can't see be that powerful? How can it be that powerful? He says in verse 8, but when you receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. This power is dunamis, is how you pronounce it, dunamis. It's where the English word finds its origin. The, the English word dynamite finds its origin in that. So I'm not saying like the Holy Spirit is dynamite. I'm just saying that's where the word dynamite finds its origins. It's in that word dunamis, which means power. And you could be saying, how can something so uh, that I can't see be so powerful? Let, let, me, uh, let me give you an illustration here. Take out your smartphone. I know you all have them. Just take them out. Like, take them out of the phone in church? Some of you are like, I already had it out for 20 minutes on Facebook, FUD. Be more interesting. I know. I'm going to try. So here's the deal. Maybe not. So you can pull it out. and so These things are amazing. Like these, I, can, I don't know how this works. I didn't write this. But I can, because I'm really bad at remembering things. Especially like important calendar events to tell my wife. And we have a lot of kids. And so scheduling can be important. So I'll have to do here is I have to open up the calendar. And I can just hit this plus button. And when I type in my event... It just goes on her phone. How did that happen? I don't understand how that happened. Or, you know, if she wants to know where I am, she can just go to this little find friends thing. She doesn't have to, she's, there's FUD. There, that's where he is. Like she knows, I don't know how that works, right? How did that happen? I have no idea. I, as I'm looking at my phone, what's, what's true now is that my life and all of us, maybe for the worse or maybe for the better, not, probably for the worse, but maybe for the better, is that our life now is kind of wrapped around this device. If this thing was gone, I don't know what we'd do. I'd be in trouble with Christy, that's for sure. I would never tell her what's going on. So like our life and our schedule is all wrapped up together into this particular thing. If there's, some, there's some powerful things happening in that little thing, holding everything together. And I'm saying, what is that? Like, what is it that's doing that? I don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is, but I don't know how it works. What's holding it all together is, is 4G or at home Wi-Fi internet, right? That, or if you're at my house, 3G because we're out in the middle of nowhere. So like that's what's holding it together, right? It's, can you see 4G? Can, I can't see it. How do you see the, I can't see it. My point is this. You don't see it, but it's holding your whole life and your whole schedule and every single thing together. Now, in the same way, and this is a bad illustration because I'm not saying like, Holy Spirit's got the same power as the internet. He's way powerful, more powerful than the internet, right? Way more infinitely powerful. But in the same kind of illustration, how can something I can't see be so powerful? In the same way. The Holy Spirit is infinitely more powerful than that. Our whole life and our whole schedule is wrapped, should be wrapped around the Holy Spirit in any way that we're going to be powered in our life, powered in our schedule, to be able to do anything that God wants is an absolute reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We have to realize that we need him to do anything in our life. And if we're trying to do it on our own, we're trying to do it on our own power, we are going to fail miserably. So the Holy Spirit is essential in your life. So the way I want you to understand this particular, this, this truth or this theme is in twofold. As you read the book of Acts, as we're studying the book of Acts, you need to realize the Holy Spirit is brand new to them and they are super excited about it. And so as you read the book of Acts, like, the only way to understand the book of Acts is to get them saying, I mean, he's not just some kind of side teaching here. He's absolutely essential for us to be able to do what Jesus told us. And therefore, he's absolutely essential in your life. The only way you're going to be obedient. He's not a backup for you. He's not 
a helper in, for, in order for you to be obedient to Jesus. He's the only power you have in order to be obedient. So therefore, are you constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit, constantly seeking God to ask the Lord to fill you with the Spirit in order to be obedient to Him? The absolute essential or integral work of the Holy Spirit is the second theme. The third one's this. <clears throat> you can see it in verses 8 through 11. But you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and all to the ends of the earth. And you can keep reading. That's kind of the conclusion part when they, uh, they saw these things and seeing Jesus being lifted up in the cloud. So the third theme is this. You have to understand this theme in order to read the, the, the book of Acts right. And I use the, unfor- the word unforeseen intentionally. You would just think it would be the commission to be witnesses. The commitment, that seems like it's got to be the theme. Like he tells them to be witnesses. And incidentally, he tells them to be witnesses if you see there in the book, in, in verse 8. Be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. By the way, that's the outline that Luke uses to write the book of Acts. So if you want to understand how to even read it, Verse, chapters 1 through 7 is them being witnesses in, Jer- in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 is them being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through 28 is them being witnesses to the end of the earth. So he uses Acts 1-8 as the outline for the rest of the book. They're just, and here's how they did it. Chapters 1 through 7, Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 in Judea and Samaria. Chapter 13 through 28 to the ends of the earth. But I say unforeseen commission to be witnesses. Because... If you look at verse 6, I think that this is unforeseen. They clearly wanted something else. Verse 6. So when they all come together, I mean, in their mind, okay, Jesus came. He's born as a baby, born in Bethlehem. And then we got this whole life. He, was, he never sinned. All right, he did all the miracles. He did the three-year ministry. He died. We're all sad. It's, it's Good Friday. Oh, he came back on Sunday. Boom, we're all restored. Everything's good. We're at the mountain. I mean, he's about to go up. And we're, we're standing here on the mountain, and they're thinking, well, this is it. I mean, everything's happened. Everything's over. Yes, finally, finally, you're going to restore the kingdom. Remember back in the Old Testament where Israel finally wanted to have a king. They finally wanted to have, they wanted to have their own country. They were, they were slaves. They finally got, and then boom, they finally became their own kingdom. And David, well, first Saul, but he kind of doesn't count. David was the king and Solomon, and they were restored, and everything's good. After that, it went bad, but it was just for this short little time. And they're thinking, I mean, that's what, that's what it was in the Old Testament. That's what we know. We're Jews, and we understand. You've done all this. You've died. You've come back. You're finally going to restore it. Verse, verse 6. When they all come together, they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Their thought is, oh, finally everything's over. Good. What can we do now? Just have a party. That's it, right? Unforeseen commission. They were really missing it. Calvin points out they're not understanding three things. One, they didn't understand Jesus' purpose for them in the world. They did eventually. But no, it's not over. As a matter of fact, disciples, guess what? (laughs) Everything is just starting now. So when you finally thought everything was over, actually, this is the whole beginning point of something completely brand new that you didn't see at all. Calvin also says, secondly, they thought Jesus was only going to do something for ethnic Israel. Are are you finally going to restore everything to the house of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, just those who are Jewish? And he's like, "Uh, no, all the nations, all those people you don't like, 
pagans, they're coming. They're thinking, we really hate the Romans. <laughs> they, they oppress us. We don't like them being over us. Can we just finally kill their kingdom and have our kingdom? Nope, not going to do it that way. It, if, our hope, if our hope is in, um, well, we'll come to that later. We'll come to that later. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. The third thing that Calvin points out is that they thought that they could predict the future that was going to happen by what was happening right now. Everything's coming up on this mountain. They're thinking, this is it. Maybe this is Zechariah 14. Like, boom, it's all over. We finally have it all. And he's like, no, it's not going to happen. Sorry. As a matter of fact, I'm doing something brand new. Completely different. You think it's over. This is actually the very beginning point. So what does this have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? This is what it has to do. They thought it was over. The disciples wanted the kingdom to finally be restored right then. It wasn't even on their radar that, it, that something brand new was starting rather than finally coming to an end. It wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't on their thoughts to say, oh, we've got to make a whole bunch more Christians now. Jesus was ready to do something complete. They wanted ease. They wanted the way it used to be. They wanted all they had really ever known, which is historically Israel, that it's finally all going to be over. They wanted their own kingdom for Jesus to be the king and have it all back and for it finally to be over. And they just thought that's what was happening. But instead, Jesus had a vastly, vastly different plan when he says, uh, no, as a matter of fact, you're going to get the Holy Spirit and then you're going to go everywhere and tell them about me. He had a vastly different plan. And they were going to have to decide at this particular moment, whose plans am I going to obey? Whose plans am I going to follow? Jesus' brand new plans that were not in my plans at all. Or what I want to do, where it's easy, what I've always known, and what I've always kind of wanted it to finally end up as. Application for us then is this. Jesus might have completely different plans for you. Completely different plans for you than what you've kind of always planned. You might be wanting to plan something around ease, what you've always known, and what it's, the way it's always been. And he has a completely different plan. And what are you going to do when you realize that his plans don't match your plans? Are you going to follow his new plan? Are you going to say, I have something different than that, Jesus. And it involves a whole lot more ease, a whole lot more comfort, and a whole lot more um, comfort of what I know. Are you going to be obedient to his brand new plan? He might have something completely different. As a matter of fact... It's implicit in the word. He tells them you're going to be witnesses. Witnesses. Martyres is the Greek word. This is where our word martyr finds its origins. The word witness, martyres, means that you bear witness of something. You visually see what happens. You take it all in, comprehend and understand what you've seen. And then after that, you go and you witness with your mouth what you now believe to be actual truth reality. That's what Luke's doing. So much so, as we get into the kind of third meaning in steps, it also means that you're eventually, you must be willing to, it might not happen, willing to suffer even to the point of death to be the witness, race, for what's true. Hence the word martyr. That's a vastly different plan than ease and comfort and what you've always known. And they had a decision to make. We know the decision they made. They said yes. They did it. That's why we're here today in South Carolina. But for you, 
what are you going to do? Jesus might have a completely different plan for you. You might even be aware of it, and you just kind of constantly be giving it the Heisman. Nope, 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 nope. Got my plan over here of ease and comfort staying. And he might be saying, yeah, but the safest place for you is right in the center of being obedient to me, not what you think. The safest place is doing what I say. You think that's safe, but the safest place actually is over here. Always for us, the safest place is right in the center of Jesus' will, not what we perceive to be safe. So the third way to understand this, (coughs) excuse me, is the unforeseen commission to be witnesses. So, as I said, this is the way Luke writes. To understand and read the book of Acts correctly is them hearing that and saying, yes, Jesus, we're going to do it. And we're going to see how it's unforeseen because they, they fumble the ball plenty of times. I mean, they make some mistakes as you read throughout, especially if you take the letters and, and see it. They're messing up all the time. They're, they're human just like us. They're not doing this witness thing perfect, but they are obeying it. They are obeying it. Even as you read, I mean, even in the book of Acts, kind of the first nine chapters is about the superstar Peter. And then he just kind of like falls out. And the rest of the book is Paul. 9 to 28, it's just the story of Paul. All of a sudden, the number one of the number one, the spokesperson of the disciples, only gets nine chapters. And then Paul takes, takes the wheel, if you will, from chapters 9 through 28. So, he's calling us to be obedient to a plan that maybe isn't what you plan. The way that we understand this is saying, unforeseen commission. I wasn't planning on obeying you to be, make disciples to be this way, Jesus, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's, it's clear what you want. That's what he's asking you to do. So the three things in order to understand the book of Acts are the absolute veracity or truthfulness of the resurrection, the absolute essential or integral work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. The resurrection is true. You have to have the Holy Spirit in order to be obedient and the commission that Jesus gives us And it might really go against your personal life plans to be witnesses or make disciples. Now, let's conclude this way. Because maybe, maybe, when I hit that two men thing, you were like, who are they? And you hadn't listened to what I've been saying. So I'm going to get to it. So you you know, hopefully you've been listening. But as you see it, I mean, verse 9, and when they said these things, as they were looking, I mean, this is, just picture this, right? I'm a big Superman fan. I've always been like a big Superman fan. So when I see somebody flying or hearing them, I was like, man, I wish I could fly. And this is what, I mean, this is literally what, it, and as they were saying these things, as Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. And Jesus has literally, and he's never done this before, right? And when he said these things, as they were looking, he was lifted up. All of a sudden, it's just like, you know, like what? You've been able to do that the whole time? We've been walking around the whole time? getting in boats and almost dying, and you could fly. And all of a sudden, and it says, and a cloud, <laughs> and he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. Now, cloud, oh, Siri. I'm telling you, my phone's messed up. Anytime I, I lean over, Siri comes on. I don't know why. Um, so all of a sudden, the word cloud's used. This isn't, a, this isn't an accident, right? This isn't an accident. The word cloud, as we know in the Old Testament, the cloud represents the presence of God. And in this particular verse, Luke is wanting you to understand that this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, 
verses 13 and 14. So way back in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy of this son of man in the cloud. This it says, and I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. So cloud represents the, the presence and glory of God. And he's being taken up out of heaven, his final ascension in glory into the heavens. And this fulfillment, it says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. So he came back up to God, and he was presented before him. He, to him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And Luke is intentionally wanting you to see he's going up in a cloud. This isn't some kind of like weather storm, like here's some, like this is, the glory of God being present, helping everyone see, this is fulfilling Daniel chapter 7 of the prophecy where Jesus is going, ascending. He is truly the Messiah that has been written about. And so you have him ascending in the clouds. And then you also see this. The cloud taken out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven, I mean, all of a sudden, he's flying. You can just picture them. You're like, like mouth wide open, fly catcher mode, like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, these two men appear. Two men stood by them in white robes. <laughs> so out of nowhere, while they're just watching Jesus Superman, like two men appear. And they're just kind of standing there. And they're like looking over, and they're like, who are you? Did you? And he asked this question. The two men asked this question. Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? Now, this is, they know the answer. D- did you not just see what happened? Jesus just flew. He's never done that before. Why do you think I'm staring up? I'm kind of jealous, and I wish I could do that. And so th- they actually know the answer. And you, Who are the two men? Likely, these are just two angels. Likely, these are just two angels. So who the two men isn't necessarily the most important thing. But what they say, the, hey, why are you standing up there looking is more important. It's kind of like, hey, guys, um, why are you staring in the sky? Didn't he just tell you to do something? Why don't you go do that instead of staring in the sky? Man, us, we hear this commission and we will err on two paths. Instead of being obedient, we will constantly find ourselves erring on two paths. We'll err to the point of laziness and indifference, sitting around being idle not being witnesses, but instead just kind of waiting for Jesus to come again and take me home because being obedient, that's hard. Or we'll err to the other path, which is so vigorous, so um, excited, but misguided affections or misguided hope in current government to finally bring about what Jesus is going to do one day, restore everything. <clears throat> and instead of um, putting all our hope in Jesus, if, if, if you think, Finally, if just Bernie or Hillary or Ted or Donald can finally get into the thing, then, then we're good. We're finally, where we are is finally restored. You, you got your hope in the wrong person. Or maybe there's a fifth one we don't know about. You know, who knows what's going on these days. Um, instead, th- that's the wrong person. There's only one person our hope is, and that's Jesus. So this, this mission is not supposed to be to be a, a Republican or a Democrat or great at politics. And it's certainly not supposed to be like lazy, is to be obedient to the task he's given us to make disciples. We're not lazy and we're not hoping in government to be changed. Instead, we're hoping in Jesus. Calvin says it this way. We're supposed to do the same thing 
Calvin said, it's the task of the visible church to make the invisible kingdom of God visible to them. To manifest to people that don't know Jesus what it would be like to live in a commonwealth ruled by Jesus. Donald and Hillary and Ted and George and whoever, they can never do it. Ronald, all these guys, presidents of our country or any country can't bring that about. We want them to see what it would be like to live in the commonwealth ruled by Jesus. So we're called then to bear witness to a reign that's based on righteousness, truth, mercy, and love. That's what Calvin says. We want to, as the church, the visible church, make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible to them by making disciples, being witnesses to the gospel and being the kind of people that are righteous, being the kind of people that are merciful, being the kind of people that tell the truth, that love truth, being the kind of people that are loving. Verse 9, it says, as they were looking, he was lifted up. I mean, it is awesome. But application-wise, that's what we want to do. Corporately, when we get together, we want to do the same thing. In worship, we want to lift him up. And corporately, as we leave to be the church, we want to lift him up and worship him with our life by being obedient to what he told us to do, be witnesses. So as we go into worship now and as we leave to be the church, let's read this book and live our lives living in light of Jesus's resurrection, the absolute truthfulness of Jesus's resurrection and let that shape the way we think and see the world and obey God. And let's absolutely depend on the Holy Spirit's power for everything. And lastly, let's fulfill the Great Commission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, your mercy. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for being obedient to your Father. Thank you for being the kind of gentle Savior that when we make our plans... You'll still boldly tell us those aren't my plans. You need to follow my plans and gently bringing us over. Thank you that the safest place in our lives, being a witness, a martureo, is in the center of your will, not ours. I pray for us all that that truth is tough sometimes for us to believe. I pray for us all that we would believe it that we would ground our entire life in the absolute truthfulness of your resurrection. And God, that we would go be witnesses to our Jerusalem, to our Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.